Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, Ryan and I are talking with our friend Chris, who actually runs his own podcast called Looking at Birds. And he sent us a little promo, so we're going to play that first, and then we'll have our full sit-down conversation. Hope you enjoy it. The podcast is geared more towards newer birders, and I try to make it as accessible as I can. Each episode, I interview someone who knows a lot more about birds than I do. We discuss their background in birding, how they're currently involved with birds, and then they share a more in-depth look at a specific bird. While most episodes follow this format, there are a handful that focus on a specific concept, like the Prey and Predator series, the Native Plant series, and a three-part series that focused on avian mating behaviors, nests, and eggs. Right now, there are 60 episodes available. The latest one actually featured Derek, and he talked about the snowy owl. Check it out. I hope you like what you hear. Everybody, welcome back to the Badgerland Birding Podcast, bringing you birding news and stories from the Badger State and beyond. Today, we're with Chris, who has his own podcast called Looking at Birds. And we're going to talk a little bit about how he got into that, what it's like being a birding podcaster, and just kind of his overall experience with birds and birding. So, Chris, how are you doing? Pretty good. I got to say, I feel like you have the perfect podcasting voice. <laughs> Thank you. Is that something that you were like, I think I, I've got a solid podcasting voice. I should start a podcast or how exactly did you get into, well, first of all, birds and then transitioning into a birding podcast? Sure. Um, yeah, the birds came first. So I think it came when I, I've always had an interest in wildlife, animals. I always liked looking at creatures. Uh, I remember as a kid seeing little sparrows hopping around when we would be out at a strip mall or at a restaurant and just out on the patio, they'd be looking for uh, bits of food. And I always enjoy just watching them. So I have memories of that. But my recent move to the uh, school I work at now, that campus, there's so many trees and there's, uh, I'm still learning the names, but I know there's these really big Aleppo pines, mesquite trees, and then a lot of different flowering plants. So these attract all sorts of birds. So coming in there, having an interest in wildlife, but not really birds and seeing these massive Harris hawks, uh, nesting great horned owls that come back every year and then little vermilion flycatchers. So I think whether you care about birds or not, when you see that splash of red, you see these massive birds of prey, you get interested. Uh, so it started there just having all these birds around me every day I go to work, uh, and just being able to observe them in their natural habitat, seeing them do uh, many of the behaviors that I read about in a field guide or on eBird. So going yeah, is there, there one in particular where you were like, I have to know more about that one? Because like we always talk about, you know, spark birds and things like that. Like what was yours where you were just like, I'm hooked now after seeing that thing? I was thinking about that because that's actually a question, you know, that comes across when I interview my guests on my own podcast is about a spark bird. You know, what bird got you interested? And I'm not sure I have a single bird, but in this case, it would probably be the vermilion flycatcher just because of the bright coloring, uh, the behaviors, because they have that unique behavior of how they'll perch on the edge of a branch, a post, and they fly out, get their prey, and then come back. I think just it's fun to watch them. You can easily watch them for five or 10 minutes without a pair of binoculars, which was nice, so they're very accessible. So I think that would probably be what you could consider a spark bird for me. That's a good one. And I think from there, it kind of developed when I got my first birding field guide, uh, the National Geographic Guide to the Western North American birds. I might've got those words out of order, but that was the field guide I got first, just poking around there, uh, looking around eBird hotspots when I discovered those. And then I bumped into some of the people, human field guides who lead <laughs> field trips for the Tucson Audubon Society, uh, bumping into some of them. And like some of the guests I interviewed early on, like Holly, Dan, Ray, uh, 
meeting some of them and then learning more about some of the birds to expect locally and then learning some of the hotspots to visit to go see some of those birds. I think that's kind of what got me started. Sure. Was there, you mentioned kind of progressively getting more into birds and birding. Was there a moment you realized like, oh, I'm actually really into this now? <laughs> or was it just kind of a slow descent into being enthused about birds? Like you were too far down the rabbit hole to turn back at some point, And that's when you realized it. That's, that's a good question. If I think about it, uh, a piece of it was, you know, seeing the birds at work every day. And then a piece of it was learning more about eBird. And then I got a camera, I got a little uh, Sony a 6,000. I got the camera really cheap on a black Friday deal, got really lucky, but then I was looking for lenses to take pictures of birds. And I found out that zoom lenses are very expensive. So I was poking around eBay for, I think the first one I got was this manual 300 mm vintage lens. So it had some reach and I could see some birds. So I bought that thing. I think it was a Minolta or something. So I got that and I started taking pictures of birds. So that I think helped me get more interested in watching them or pursuing them. So I wouldn't go out necessarily just to bird, but I would go out to take pictures of birds. And then that kind of progressed. So I like technology. So having photography, that's a whole new thing. So, you know, researching all the different lenses, figuring out how to do things. So I think that kind of went hand in hand with birding at the time. Um, I probably, I'd have to think about maybe a year in before I really got serious where I would pick a destination. I mean, even just here around town, like Madera Canyon, and just visit with a pair of binoculars and a camera and go there specifically just to look at birds. I think that was probably a year in. Yeah. Did you ever have that moment where you like looked around and you noticed people like looking at you, you know, especially if you go in like a public place where that people aren't used to people birding, where you're like, oh, no, I'm that guy. Like, I'm the guy that's looking at birds that everyone is questioning now. I think the probably that first year, I was really self-conscious taking a pair of binoculars anywhere. When I would go to some of these places and I had a pair of binoculars and I would look around and other people did not have binoculars. <laughs> uh, unless I went to like a place like Madera Canyon, you know, there's some spots there where everybody's got a huge camera and binoculars. Uh, but definitely in the beginning when I was first starting out, uh, I was a little self-conscious about that. It's kind of funny because I feel like people, when we're, you know, doing that, they'll come up to us and they'll be usually intrigued. Like they're not like, oh, you're a weirdo. They're like, hey, what's over there? Like they're always super interested for the most part. Yeah, um, unless you're unless... doing urban birding and you just have That's a pair of binoculars. Say. Yeah, then it gets questioned. Or the People big ones. People always think Derek's trying to steal their dog. <laughs> it was actually in Arizona where uh, me and my friend were out at the festival and somebody was got all weird because we were looking at birds by their property. Oh, uh, yeah. You will, yeah. you will encounter the you know homeowner that gives you, gives you a little business. I was uh, a little more careful. So, um, Oh, yeah. Have you since been less self-conscious now? Are you more oh, like, yeah, sure. I'm looking at birds? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got the, you know, the comfortable straps that hold the binoculars there. Um, my wife, she has a vest with all these things hanging off of it. Uh, so we don't we don't care at all now when we go out. <laughs> As it should be. I remember it. It's funny. Probably the, the binoculars I was less self-conscious about, but the hat, you know, we're in the Southwest. It's hot most of the birding year. Um and I got these, you know, those huge hats that, you know, circle, not a ball cap, but the, I can't even think like of the name right hat. now. Yeah. Bucket hat. Oh. There you go. So I had never owned one, but when I first got one, I thought, oh, this makes it a lot more comfortable to bird. So then now I have like three of them. So I think walking around with those, I feel more ridiculous wearing that hat than anything else. You know, I feel like Ryan does too, because he normally will never wear those. Like I have one that I wear almost every time I'm in a place that's hot, but he will just not 
No, I'll never one. wear one of those. No, it's too ridiculous. <laughs> See, I'll just not wear that, the ball cap. You're not as crazy of a birder yet. You still have more to go to accept the hat. You're like, you care about your public image too much. You're clearly not an actual birder. Yep. You have to have a certain amount of brim around the hat to qualify as that. <laughs> it's uh, like, you know, this diameter. <laughs> it has to go all the way around. <laughs> it can have no breaks in the circularness of the brim. So just for people that may not be familiar with the specific names of places, so you're based out in Arizona, right? Yeah, yeah, which Tucson. is yeah, that's and that's an incredible birding place to be. Like if you're gonna get into birds, that's a a wonderful place to kind of start that journey from. Yeah, I was very fortunate early on. I discovered that quickly as I was looking around and learning about the hotspots, all the birds, and then when it didn't hit me till I started looking at other places. When I looked at other states and other cities and saw that, wow, we have a lot more birds than them. And then, yeah. you know, during the migration season, we get all these birds that come through. So then I realized that this is a great place to get started in birding. I picture you being like, Iowa, I don't want to go there. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I, I was going to say, I picture him being like somewhere else and be like, this place sucks. <laughs> Just where like, all the birds. Get back immediately. <laughs> Not Wisconsin, though. Wisconsin's superb. Not as superb as Arizona, but superb. It's superb in different ways. We got some different habitats out here. Um, we got a big lake, so that's there true. We go. Yeah, basically, like I uh, have you ever been to the Great Lakes, Chris? I have not. So people, it, people don't understand that it's more like an ocean. Like you stand there, you cannot see the other side. Like in <laughs> people, we have the world's largest music festival, or at least it used to be called Summerfest. And people there, they're like, oh, I love seeing the ocean out there. Like they forget where they are because these lakes are so massive. But people just don't really comprehend what kind of a a big thing and ecosystem it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard about their massive size. And I'm guessing because of that massive size, it probably attracts birds that don't normally visit smaller lakes. Oh, yeah, for sure. We have like an entire different set of species that like the rest of the Midwest that's not bordered by at least one Great Lake just don't really get. So like the gull diversity is really good. The shorebird diversity is really good. Um, so a lot of stuff takes advantage of those big lakes. And if it, you know, some stuff like um, the loons that we get, you know, we can sometimes get like Pacific loon out there on like Lake mm. Superior and stuff like that. You know, you'll read about and be like not usually found in interior lakes. So it's like you do get good stuff out there because of that great lake hmm. i have kind of a odd question i haven't been on many uh pelagic trips but i i understand the basic concept is you're out on a boat you go far out and you see a bird out on the water that you would never see closer to the shore are there some birds like that on the lakes because they're so massive you know there are some birds that. like that out there so like um the jaegers that come through especially during september if you did do like a Great Lakes type pelagic, you could see those out there. And then also you sometimes get really big rafts of ducks. So I've heard of people going out farther from the shore and getting like thousands of long-tailed ducks just out oh, there wow. kind of floating around. So you yeah. can certainly get some things out there in the middle of the lake. But it's not really a thing where there's like pelagic tours out there. Okay. So I feel like it's kind of a, you could go out and see what you might find. And I think people have like know. tried to dabble with it. So I think they've like kind of done sort of pelagics like nothing official but like an attempt to go out there but yeah, yeah I, a lot of those great lakes too like they've taken down planes and boats, boats and things like that over the course of the the history of people traveling there so they could be a little <laughs> dangerous too if you get out in the middle of it and it gets choppy oh uh, so you'd have to have a good sized boat to be able to weather that i would if say the weather's so, yeah. bad yeah do you think that's the biggest reason there's not more of these kinds of trips I think it's like the reward isn't necessarily worth the potential risk. So I think like you're probably you know, not going to find a storm petrol out there or anything. 
We you don't know? know though. We don't know. We, we, we don't know. There could be anything out there. There could be like a hidden island with dinosaurs in the middle of Lake Michigan. <laughs> we wouldn't know about it. Um. Yeah. It's it's pretty cool though. Uh. But transitioning into you know your love of birds. Then at what point were you like, I'm gonna start a podcast? Um. It was probably probably at six months in to get more getting into more serious birding where I'm actually going to places. Um, and I was looking at podcasting and you hinted at it earlier. You mentioned the voice. Uh, that was something that I had heard, you know, growing up in college, just as an aside, I was just looking for other things to get involved in. And one of the things I thought of was, you know, when, when I was younger, people would say, Oh, you have a radio voice, even though, you know, I don't listen to the radio anymore, but at the time, you know, radio was still a thing. So the campus, radio station they had their own radio station so i went over there to see can i get on there what does it take to get on the radio so i thought uh, i mean at the time i was a little cocky i thought oh i have this voice everybody tells me i have a great voice you know give me a piece of paper i'll read it and hire me so i went over there and they had a little sheet they had a, a one pager and it had like some news pieces a weather piece and some other random information and you're you i was brought in i had to sit in a little booth with the mic and read that page and i thought i read it pretty well but then after they gave me some feedback and they said, okay, we would, we would take you on, but here's what you'll do. You can do the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift and you don't really get to talk. You just read this, this, these little, you know, one sentence or two sentences every half an hour or so, and then just keep hitting the button to change the songs. So at the time I didn't want to make that investment. So I kind of backed off. Uh, and now, you know, so many years later with podcasting becoming a thing and it's so much more accessible that anybody can start that. I thought, well, why don't I get into that? What could I do? So I was thinking of the other interests I had and what I could do. And I was actually on the phone with one of my buddies and I was talking to him about it. And he said, why don't you do a podcast on birds? And initially I laughed. I thought that's ridiculous. I was like, who would listen to a podcast just about people talking about birds? So then I you know, hopped on the platforms and started poking around and I saw there was a handful of podcasts already out there. And then I started listening to some of them and I thought, okay, this is a thing. Um, so after listening to a few of the different podcasts there, I thought, what can I do that was a little different? And then I started digging into, okay, concept, how, how would I structure my episodes? How would I structure each piece? And as I was looking at those things, I thought, well, you know what? What's the core of why I want to start this podcast? I just want to learn more about birds. And this would be a really cool way to do that. And that's kind of been my driving goal force, whatever you want to call it with recording each episode is I just want to learn more about birds. And that's what I look for each time I pick a guest or invite somebody on. And I'm just hoping to learn more about birding and birds. And that was kind of with that simple goal. Uh, it's carried me this far. Now we're 60 episodes in. Yeah, that's awesome. Was there a particular guest you had on that was surprising? Like that brought in a really interesting piece of information that kind of changed the way that you look at birds and birding? I think because I got into it so, I guess, young as far as a birder, I didn't know anything. So every time I interviewed people, I was learning so much. Uh, as I think back, every episode I can think of, there's always a moment uh, where I just learned something brand new. And at that moment, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, you know, because you've been on the podcast that I have, you know, a little list of questions. So I try to have some structure in place and I plan a lot of the pieces. But when I get there and we're actually having the conversation, every time something always pops up that, that will surprise me or that I've never heard before about either uh, a place to bird or a specific bird. And that's something that I really enjoy about it. So I can't really pick just one, 
But I will say that without fail, every episode, even if I go into an episode and as I'm looking at the planning and looking at the things I'm thinking, okay, I know all these things, I'll still get a surprise. Is there anything that somebody talked about in terms of like either the, cause you kind of do, you know, talk about what the guest does normally. And then you kind of talk about a specific bird. Um, and then the guests usually brings info on that bird. Is there anything that anybody said that has made you go, okay, now I have to go to that location or, okay, now I have to go see that bird. Like just gotten you really super pumped up about it because of like the pitch that they basically made about that bird or that place. Kind of like that. Uh, I was really fortunate in the the first three episodes I recorded in the span of like a week because I wanted to have a small, uh, I guess, bank of episodes. So I was ready to roll them out because I wasn't really sure how I would get more episodes and things. So I thought, okay, well, if, at least if I have a little head start. Uh, so that was Ollie, uh, Dan, and Ray, those three. So for those, each one that I interviewed, I had, uh, except for the Great Horned Owl, I had seen that one, but I hadn't seen a greater Roadrunner before and I hadn't seen a Burrowing Owl before. So... With Holly, I didn't have to wait long because right after we interviewed at uh, Sweetwater Wetlands, which is one of the eBird hotspots here in Tucson, uh, there's this particular spot that had a lot of high reeds and there's this little dirt pathway down the center. So I just dropped my plastic six foot table and two chairs right there. And the reeds provided some protection from the wind and uh, we were able to have a private place to interview. So right after we finished the interview, we talked about the uh, Greater Roadrunner. I was carrying all my stuff back to my car. And as I was loading the stuff in, a greater roadrunner walked up to my car, not even six feet away. And that was my first time seeing one right after I just heard about it. So that was such a cool experience. Um, when you talk about hearing about the bird and wanting to go see it, uh, when I interviewed Ray, uh, he had actually initially wanted to talk about the great horned owl, but because Dan had already covered it in the episode right before, he said, okay, I'll take the burrowing owl. Uh, then as he started telling me about it, I couldn't believe it. You know, these tiny little owls, they're so small. Uh, and as he kept talking about it, I was excited. And, you know, I asked my different questions and learned more about it. And at the end, once we had turned off the mics, he said, have you seen the ones here? I said, no. He said, they're right up the street. And it wasn't even a 15 minute drive. So he gave me directions. And right after I packed up my stuff, I drove right over there and I got to see a burrowing owl for the first time. So I think that was really neat because I just learned all these details about it. And now I get to see them and I can see some of those same behaviors and uh, just the way their appearance and things. And uh, that was really neat. I think that you have to have a rule now that the guest has to pick a bird that's within five miles of wherever you're stationed at at that given moment so that you can always, when you get excited about it, just be like, yeah, I'll just go those, uh, you know, two miles down the road and check out that, uh, whatever it is, the hepatic tanager that you're trying to find or something like that. That would be, that would be pretty good. That actually has worked pretty well when I go somewhere else. Like when I went down to the, uh, uh to Harlingen for the Rio Grande Valley bird festival, there, I had set up some interviews with some different people at each of the, um, what do they call it? Oh, the World Birding Center. I don't know what they call each individual piece, but you know, like the parks that are a part of the World Birding Center, there's like 11 or 12. Yeah. So I reached out to some of those and at each one of those, I asked them to talk about a bird that was seen at their place at that uh, park. So that was kind of like that because right after I interviewed them, I got to go see that that exact bird. Yeah, that's a place that it kind of led to my question actually was because we were talking about South Texas uh, the other day with Justin LeClaire, who we had on, who's a friend of ours. And mm -hmm. after we talked about it, I was like, man, I really want to go back down there. And now we are going back down there. We were like, do you want to just go down there? Like we just talked about it. I'm all excited about it again. So um, you definitely get that vibe when you like either reminisce about the places you've been or you hear about a new one. You're just like, ooh, I think I need to go there. Yeah. 
And that's that's for sure one, because the first time I went there, I've only been there twice now. Uh, the first time I went there, I went there with the goal of interviewing a lot of people. So I, I set up, you know, I was there for four days. Every day I had two interviews and I was just driving from place to place, get the interview, see the bird, go to the next place. Uh, so it was kind of rushed. But this year I went and I didn't schedule any interviews and I went just to bird and I signed up for a couple of field trips. And that was such a cool experience. That place is such a beautiful place to bird. Yeah, it has like a certain vibe of its own. And I always bring this up, but it's like one of the places that's best suited in terms of an ecotourism perspective, because like everything is just set up for people to go birding there. Because And I think Arizona, especially Southeast Arizona, is similar to that too. But like place up here, there's no place where there's an infrastructure to bird, you know, but maybe down there Horicon it's like- Horicon Marsh. Maybe. maybe, yeah. I mean, Horicon, like isolated place like that, but like an entire region that's like, you go here to bird. You know, that was like- so crazy to me how you'd go to almost any nature center and be like, what rare stuff is here? And they'd know exactly what it was there. Like definitely, seen day of or not seen. You definitely would not feel out of place with your binoculars in South Texas. Yeah. 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 You'd probably I do feel out of place if you didn't have binoculars. Yeah. It's like everyone there is birding and it's just like crazy. Um, I feel like this is totally off topic. I feel like way more people are into birding definitely now than there was even like three years ago. I know part of that's like the COVID birders thing, but I was uh, birding with one of my friends a couple of days ago and we went to this place that's adjacent to a landfill. So there's gulls that just, you know, accumulate there. And, you know, usually you're the only person looking at the dump gulls when you're there, but there was like two sets of cars there scoping out the gulls already. And I'm like, what's even happening here? Like, I've never seen anybody else really <laughs> looking at these gulls other than maybe one time. So it seems to be growing. Just wait till it spreads to the youth. You're like, we got to get to the dump before the high schoolers get here. And they mess it all up. <laughs> I know early on getting into birding, I realized how valuable waste processing facilities were as far as sites to see birds. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is hilarious. I'm, I tell the story a lot, but that was like the one thing that when we started birding, I was like, but I'm never going to do that. And it was like no more than a month later when there was like a slaty back gull reported at the dump. And I was like, okay, we're going to go to the dump then. Nice. Yeah, and Sweetwater Wetlands that you mentioned, that's that's a cool place. That was one of the first places me and Ryan went when we were in Arizona for the first time. So we got our life for Gamble's Coil there. Oh, Aver nice. Sohi. Yeah, we just caught it at like the end of the day and we were able to pick up some lifers. And then I ended up going back there and saw it's kind of funny because it's rare for the region, but not necessarily for us because we get them every uh, migration. But Black and White Warbler was there. Oh, people like rare Black and White Warbler. Yeah, that nice. is a, you mentioned earlier, the Averts Tohi. That's a reliable place to see one of those. Um, if I go there and I don't see much else, I'll see some Averts Tohi, some Gambles Quail, and usually a couple of Verdon. I can, I can count on yes. seeing those three every time, like throughout the year. And there's that's, a lot of lizards neat. there too, which is cool. There are. Yeah. That's probably why the apparently road likes it. Large spiders too in the bathrooms there, apparently. <laughs> yeah, they're uh that's one of the few places I've seen a coyote up close. I've seen, I've driven by some in the neighborhood here, uh, but they're seeing one up close. There's a lot of rabbits. I forget what they're called. I think they're called an Arizona cottontail. Uh, the little ones that, you know, in the springtime, they're super cute because they're just tiny little puff. Uh, but that was one of the places I like to go because it's, it's central to town. What's crazy was I lived here six years before I even learned about that place. And I couldn't believe how close it was to the city. Because a lot of birding spots like Madera Canyon or some of these other spots, you know, you got to take a half an hour, 45 minute drive some direction. But here, this was just smack in the middle of town. It's right off the highway. Uh, so it was so cool the first time I saw it. I couldn't believe, you know, all this is right here. Uh, but 
just as an aside, when you're talking about creatures that are there, that was the first place I saw. And now I'm, I'm going to miss the name. I want to say it was an Arizona field mouse. Hmm. Uh, but it was like my first time seeing a mouse just in the wild. Uh, so I had my camera and I got a picture. And I know a lot of people don't really like mice, but that thing looked really cute. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had a lot of mice when we were kids. So we like really appreciate rodents. Like they are totally adorable. Yeah. Um so you can get some really cute stuff of those guys. Voles, too, are another one where they're just, like, super cute. I feel like uh, Sweetwater, it's kind of similar in a way to, like, Central Park, New York, where, mm -hmm. like, it's the one, you know, piece of greenery, essentially, or, like, water, especially in the Tucson area, in, like, a yeah. sea of nothingness. So it's, like, anything passing over or going by is, like, oh, here we go. Like, got some habitat. So it just makes it, like, a really good centralized location, it seems like. Yeah, I agree. So being from that Southeast Arizona region, do you have a top five places to bird in Southeast Arizona? Sweetwater would definitely be, that'd probably be the top of my list just because it doesn't matter what time of year or what time of day. Because I could go there, you know, a lot of birding sites, you got to wake up at you know 5 a.m. to get there to see the good stuff. But the, Sweetwater is a place that you could go almost any time of day, any time of year, and you're going to see a handful of birds there and maybe some other creatures. So I think Sweetwater would probably be towards the top just because I don't always have time. Like during a busy week, if I wanted to bird, I'm not going to make a trip out somewhere else, but I could go to Sweetwater pretty easily. So that one might be my top one. Um, I think a second would probably be Madera Canyon just because also proximity. It's It's about a half an hour drive for me. And... Once you park, you don't have to walk far to see a lot of birds, uh, especially if you hit those feeders at the uh, Santa Rita Lodge. Mm, there's a, yeah. there's all those hummingbirds there. There's a lot of songbirds that'll visit there. And then uh, there's a couple of trails right there. You don't have to go more than a mile and you're going to see some things. So I think that would go um, second one. Uh, after that, uh, that's pretty sad that I can't give you a top five. Because those are like my top two that, that well, I always I think just you think gave of. Two really accessible ones. Yeah. You know, like you could be anyone from anywhere, go to those two places and you're gonna see cool things. Cause like you yeah. said, you just you park and you're basically there. Like you're gonna see cool stuff. Yeah. So I think that's a solid like top two super accessible locations. Um what would you add, Derek? I mean, I really enjoyed Box Canyon. Have you mm -hmm. ever been to Box yeah. Canyon? Yeah, that uh, was really I cool. I drove through there once. I was I joined a team on a uh, what's it? It's called is it called a big? I, I forgot the term now. I like a it's big, a big day. day. Yeah. yeah, it was a big day because here in Tucson they do something. The Tucson Audubon does something in May where they have different teams that'll do you know a twenty four hour stretch. So I joined a team for half their half their stretch, uh, and Box Canyon was one of the spots we drove through. But it was you know you're just moving so fast, so I didn't really get to bird there. Yeah, because um, we saw Five Stripes Sparrow there, which was really awesome. And we had, um, uh, what's the bunting that you guys have that's like purple? Lazuli bunting? Mm -mm, no, varied. it's oh. varied. Yeah, varied oh, bunting the varied. there. Yeah, I have not seen um, one of those yet. Yeah, it was just like we, and we had Montezuma quail. So mm -hmm. it, like, it's hard for me not to think. That's a win. Yeah, that place that's is awesome. Uh, there's also the uh, place with all the hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. Patton's it's one of the canyons. Well, that's oh, cool. That's cool. Yeah. But there's um, Ash Canyon. Oh, where yeah, you can yeah. get like Lucifer Hummingbird. That's another yeah. one that's pretty accessible too. Um, we went to Miller. I'm Canyon. pretty partial to Mount Lemon. Oh yeah, so Mount Lemon. The, I don't know if you were into birding at the time. The pine flycatcher was on Mount Lemon. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was a pine flycatcher, which like was it Code Five, Derek? Rarity. I think so. Yeah. 
I think it was a code five rarity and it was like it looked pretty much exactly like a Cordieran flycatcher, which no longer exists because it's the Western flycatcher, but it would come back to like the certain spot every so often and like just sing from there. And wow. Mount Lemon was cool because there was red faced warbler there too and it's Lucy's not warbler. super hot. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a great place to I mean just hike or bird just because you can escape the heat for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, saguaro is really cool. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Every time I think I'm like, oh yeah, those are some other top places. There's like more Arizona places to add because there's just so much to see there. Yeah, and yeah. I guess if I expand further, when I think of places to bird, I think of where I'll actually get to bird in a normal, you know, week, and that's why I pick those places. But if I have you know a three day weekend or something, I probably would like Lake Patagonia. There's so oh, much yeah. there. Definitely. And then um, Ramsey Canyon. Those are some other good spots where it's a little bit of a drive. And then like Whitewater Draw. Uh, that's one. There's a golf course there in um, Wilcox. Yeah, I was missing the word for a second. So there's a golf course there. And they, it's a pretty reliable place to see some shorebirds. And then also you see some of the Sandhill Cranes when they come through. And that's one of those places where you mentioned earlier, um, what was the location you mentioned where you suddenly started seeing cars there and you didn't expect to see them? When you're first getting into birding, I think Ryan mentioned it. The dump. Yeah, there you go. The dump. <laughs> so oh, yeah. this is kind of the same thing. Cause this is random golf course that doesn't have a ton of traffic. Well, it doesn't have a ton of traffic in the you know late morning, mid afternoon. And there's these two little ponds of water, and you'll just see all these cars parked around, and they slowly drive around the perimeter, and everybody's got their binoculars peeking out their windows or a scope out the side, uh, and they're looking at those shorebirds. So that's that reminded me when you mentioned the dump and you mentioned seeing cars where you wouldn't normally see them. That was a place that struck me because there's this random golf course. You have to drive by it, and it seems pretty deserted. You're wondering, is there what are we going over here for? And you know, two minutes in, bam, there's these two big ponds of water, and like, oh, there's some cool birds here. Yeah, it's like you see all these other cars out there, and then you see the lenses out, and you're like, all right, we're among company here, boys. Let's go get them. Yeah, and then you also have um, – we didn't make it out there, but I know a lot of people go to Portal. That's a big mm-hmm. a big place you can go. Uh, but mentioning kind of like you know the first ones that came to mind for you, Ryan mm-hmm. and I went off on the spike trail today just to kind of like – it's a place we go a lot, so we kind of know what's there, and we were just enjoying like – kind of out of season white throated sparrow and stuff those areas mm-hmm. that you get to go more often you tend to know like the little secrets about it or like you know the species that might be slightly more common you kind of get to know that area so well yeah what kind of things have you learned from like your local patches or just the areas you get to go more often uh like right when you brought that up i thought of a place where earlier in my birding career i started visiting a lot uh there's a garden here called tohono chul gardens um you can probably walk the whole place in 20 minutes, but it has some very distinct patches of vegetation. So, you know, you have some cacti here, you have a, a certain, I don't know anything about trees and plants, but I know there's some big trees here. There's some flowering plants here. There's some cactus here. So, you know, there's some diversity in that small area. And I think early on, I would just walk around there for the convenience because it would take, you know, half an hour and it was really relaxing, but there were particular birds that would hang out in each spot. So I got pretty good at knowing where, the Abert's Tohi would like to hang out, where the broad-billed hummingbird, which was the first time I saw one, was there, where it liked to buzz around. Uh, we got, I'm trying to remember, um, I think it's called a black-capped gnatcatcher. Is that one of the ones that's common here? Kind of common? So I know the black-tailed. Two of them. Black-tailed, I think, is the more common. It's probably the more common one. I think uh, black-tailed. But, 
Yeah. There was a particular bush in that garden where every time I walked by, I could go look around that little, there's like three or four shrubs and it would always be hiding in there. So I think that was really neat to know where birds were. And then that was really cool when you would bring somebody else there because you can say, oh, there's a broad-billed hummingbird right here, or there's a northern mockingbird right here. And then you sound very smart as you point out these birds with multi-word titles. <laughs> you're like a king. You're just like, and watch this is on the right. The black-tailed <laughs> netcatcher is going to pop out and sing. And then it happens. You're like, I told you. <laughs> One of the coolest things there, actually there at Toto Chul, is the cactus wren. Because they have such a distinct scratchy call. So when I hear that call, immediately I start looking, okay, here's all the cactus. Let me see if I can find it. And then when you find it, it's such a, it's such a nice reward. Yeah. yeah, and they're chunky yeah. too. Yeah. We always talk too about how much more beneficial it is when you start to learn how to bird by ear. Because mm -hmm. we used to see these checklists people would have and be like, there's no way they saw all that stuff. Like just no chance. And then we would go out eventually when we learned so many more calls and we would just be like, oh, that's one of these. Oh, that's an Eastern towhee. Oh, that's a swan from the distance. Like you just start to pick up so much and it really enhances the way that you go birding. What do you feel like was the biggest thing that for you was like a game changer? Was it learning the calls or was it something else? I think one piece was when you talk about going to familiar places, when you recognize that birds like to hang out in these kinds of vegetation, and then you can start looking, like when you hear a call and then you look in the vegetation and you see the bird, I think that was probably the game changer, knowing a little bit about the vegetation and then learning the calls. Because that was so helpful when you can walk into a place, hear a call, and then kind of zero in on it and then know that, oh yeah, it likes to hang around this kind of vegetation. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's weird how partial some birds are to particular habitat too, because it gets to the point where you're like, oh, there's a patch of this particular kind of weed, like smart weed is one that like, um, the not the Henslows, the um, Nelson sparrows are like oh, around Nelson's. here. Yeah, and if and the Lacans will like it too, but it's like, oh yeah, that's a patch of smart weed. Look out for Nelson sparrows in there, and then like you see one, and you're like, oh okay, I guess they do really love it. You know, they're so partial to particular habitats, it's kind of goofy. That yeah. reminds me of we went out with our friend Chris in Arizona, mm -hmm. and we were looking for elegant trogan, and he's like, sycamore, water. You got sycamore, <laughs> you got water. You have a chance for elegant trogan. Is that where you found it? That we we did, yeah. <laughs> was it was spot on. <laughs> there were lots Perfect. of sycamores. But it's cool when you can dial that in and even just yeah. see a habitat and almost predict things or say, you know, during the spring, this is going to be good for this bird. And then you see it there and it's almost you have that. It's almost like a superpower. I think of birding by ear feels like a superpower too, to just identify the call and then be able to see it and be like, yeah, it was it was right. Definitely. I think I've only got maybe. 20 calls down, you know, the, the 20 most frequent birds I see, but I did have a chance to go birding with Chris once and just the way he would spot things. It seemed like he could hear something hundreds of feet away and I could barely see the thing in my binoculars and he had pegged the tree where this bird was. And then as we got closer, sure enough, it was there. So I would agree. It's definitely a superpower. Yeah. I feel like you almost have like a birder stare where you're hearing something. It's like the and then you call it out. There's like just a thing birders do. Or like you'll be talking be like, wait. And then they'll call call out whatever they're hearing. That's just like that scene in the big year when Jack Black hears the Western Tanager and he just like cuts the dude off who's like Sheldon from And he the like big slides down a rock or something. Yeah, he like falls down pictures. a rock. Yeah, he's just like, wait. And then he's like, Western Tanager. That's what it's like in real life, though. I I'm assuming you've seen the big year, right? I did. As I was getting into birding, that was one of the things when 
when people you know find out you're in birding, they try to throw any bird-related thing at you. So then everybody around me, oh, do you like birds? Here's five things that have pictures of birds on them. And that yep. just became like that first Christmas. You know, you're getting a lot of bird-related <laughs> items. Uh, but that was one of the things when people were suggesting uh, movies. Like, oh, have you seen this movie? And the big year, yeah. So I think I saw that yeah, in that same first year. Yeah, it's a it's a really good movie. That's actually what sparked Ryan and I to try birding for the first time and and actually get out and do it. So we, I think we watched at least once a year, just to kind of like, like get us it like excited. Four times a year, maybe you watch it without me more often I than I know. <laughs> I do, you know, weekly just to get hyped, just to yeah. stay on the grind. So I think the. Oh, go ahead. oh, I was just going to add on to that. I think the first time I went to a birding festival, the Southeast Arizona birding festival here, and then seeing the way uh, people would leave for field trips, like all these people, you got all these groups that would leave, get in vans and go out on these trips. And then they got this huge board where they're writing down every single bird they've seen. I think that was my first time making that connection between that movie and real life. I was like, oh, there's people like that here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's so many sure. things that are really accurate about that movie. Like the one that comes to mind too is when he's, I forgot what bird it is he's chasing. It's Bostic and he's like, he finds it in this marshy habitat. Do you remember what bird it was, Derek? It was one we haven't seen before. Which part of the movie? It's the first part of the movie. It's um, it's one that actually lives in Arizona, one of the flycatcher species. But anyway, um, he like tracks it down and then there's probably like 20 people in the bushes with cameras all like... um taking pictures of it i'm like that's how it really is like if there's a rare bird there is going to be a gaggle of people there taking yeah. pictures of that bird and taking videos of that bird it'll come to me derek don't worry all right um so chris you've been to the southeast arizona festival and the rio grande valley birding festival what is different about those two experiences because I've, I've been to both i enjoyed both i kind of enjoyed different things about each one but what's your take on those two Nutting's flycatcher. There you go. I think I'm a little, uh, because I've only been to the, well, I've been to those two and I've been to the one in San Diego. So I've been to three total. Uh, but I think I'm a little biased being in Arizona. You know, I've been to that one. When I went to Texas for the first time and saw all those different birds at the Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival, I think that excuse my perception because when I come to this one, you know, I see that list of like, Oh, those are all the ones I always see. And people are getting excited about them, but I just know those ones. But when I go to Texas, there's a list that I don't recognize a single bird on that list, you know, that the top 20 or whatever, I don't know any of those. So it's a brand new experience to see those. So I think from a bird perspective, just because it's a place that I don't live, I really like that side of it. Um, I think the size of the Rio Grande Valley bird festival is a little larger than the Southeast Arizona one. Um, but other than that, like the way the actual festival runs structurally isn't that different. Uh, I think the people are different in each place, but that's about uh, as far as I would say a difference. I mean, do you have, you've been to both of those. Do you have uh, things that pop out in your mind for differences? So I kind of have this theory that I think for beginners, the South Texas festival is better. Just because I feel like you can get point blank views of green jays, Altamira Orioles, and Kiskadees. Like, I feel like yeah. if you go to one of those centers, you can just be at like at the blind and see them. And then people at the center be like, oh, you're looking for the Kiskadees? Like, it's very accessible. Yeah. I almost feel like in Arizona, you can end up going more out to places where it's you're kind of more on your own. I feel like there's almost more diversity of habitat in Arizona, which I like because you can go to Mount Lemon, then you can go to the desert, then you can go to 
you know, a forest. But I feel like South Texas, they almost have those species everyone wants to see and they're very accessible. So I feel like from like a regional perspective, that was kind of the vibe that I got. Yeah, I th I do think that in South Texas and at the Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival, you could see, like you said, you can see these birds point blank pretty easily. While in Arizona, you might have to seek them out a little more, but you will see, you know, some of these really neat birds, but you have to go maybe farther, deeper into a certain area to get a good look. Yeah, definitely. I've never been to either, so I can't help you guys out with that comparison. But you got to get I've, get on the festival game. I have been to both regions, and it, like I mentioned, the accessibility, too, of the Rio Grande Valley in general. I feel like those birds that are there, I feel like a lot of them, too, are like large species. You know, like green jays and kiskadees are pretty Chachalaca. big. Chachalaca. Chachalaca <laughs> is certainly large. I feel like a lot of the stuff in Arizona is like warblers, stuff that's a little smaller and a little more flitty. So it's kind yeah. of like, you know, you get those point blank views at large species in Texas. So it's just like, you know, they're big and kind of in your face. And in Arizona, I feel like it's just a little bit less like that. But I can't speak to the uh, festivals. I have not been to a bird festival yet. So I'm lagging oh. behind both of you guys. We yeah, will be. Like, wow, what a noob. <laughs> <laughs> we will be releasing the uh, Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival experience video sometime in the future. So people can see what it's like to go to a birding festival and, you know, everything that goes on there with the booths, the field trips, kind of the different people you meet. I would definitely recommend it if, if anyone hasn't done it before. And I think, uh, it's pretty friendly for people of all different levels too. Yeah. Yeah. Most of these festivals do a really good job of categorizing their field trips to make it apparent that it's accessible to a beginner. So you'll know which trip to pick and things like that. Yeah. I think bird festivals are a great way to get further into birding if it's something you have a small interest in you can just dive in at one of those because you're just surrounded by all these people who know so much uh when you go on those field trips all these people are so excited to see these birds and you learn so much on that you know two or four hour field trip at any of these locations yeah it was funny throughout the week because i would see kind of the same people and at the beginning I'm like oh what are you guys most excited to see they're like oh aplomato falcon green they have this whole list and at the end you're like hey like what are you guys excited to see and sometimes like ah, i've seen everything they like they've like gotten everything that they wanted to get, and they're like, "I'm just here to see what see what we find. I've got no targets. I'm good." Like they've yeah. they've knocked out everything on their list of birds to see, which is great. Like we love it when they is can that do great that. or is that depressing? Like, well, we had stuff like you know bear throated tiger hair and pop up, so there were things that they could then you know add on and try to see. Chris, I <laughs> wanted to know: Is there a region that you're really excited to take a birding trip to now? Is there any place that's like really on your bucket list to go to, whether it's in the U.S. or outside of the U.S.? There's a couple. Uh, I think one of them is, it's a little cliche, is Costa Rica. Because then you get, you know, I, you just get to see these birds so close and there's so many different ones. But I got an interesting piece of advice from one of the guests I interviewed. And she mentioned that you don't want to start at Costa Rica. You kind of want to build up. So you might go to Panama or some of these other places where you might see 20 or 30 species or 50 species before you go to Costa Rica where, you know, you're getting 150 in that few days. Uh, and that was an interesting way of thinking about it. But th that is one place that I would like to bird for sure. Uh, and then two other, uh, I don't know a specific country yet, but the continent of Africa. I'd like to visit there to see some of the birds because I just know they have birds that you don't have anywhere else. And then uh, India. That's another country I would like yeah. to visit because I just know there's so much there that isn't elsewhere. So I think those yeah, I think... are three places. Oh, go ahead. 
I think India is the most biodiverse country in terms of birds, I believe. I think they have the most species of anywhere. Mm. Wow. Well, it's fact it's incredible. That. Yeah, I was going to say, you can fact check that. I thought I heard that somewhere. So, I, I thought I heard something like that too. But yeah, Costa Rica is incredible. It mm-hmm. definitely is a little overwhelming though. Because like everything you see, like what's that? What's this? What's this? I got to get a picture of like all this stuff. Yeah. And I could see, you know, if you kind of work your way down, kind of seeing a couple new species, enjoying those, then going a little further south, I could see how that would be beneficial. Sure. Uh, have you ever made the trip into Mexico to do birding there? I have been, been learning more people may like take trips down mm-hmm. and then they'll see some of the species you can't really see in the U.S. and then they'll come back up because I don't, I don't know if it's dangerous or not, but the people that do it, they're like, you know, older birders and like young homeschooled kids. So it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like it can be that dangerous if they're doing <laughs> making all these trips down there. There's a lot of safe places to visit there. So there's plenty of big cities that you could visit. So I'm sure uh, if you do a little research, you could find some good spots to hit. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. All right. Countries with the most bird species. I like the live fact check. <laughs> so I don't, this is by total number of bird species by country from BirdLife International, last updated December 26, 2023. At number one, we have Columbia. Oh, wow. With right. 1,917, which is 18.3% of the global share. That's wild. Followed by Peru, Brazil, Indonesia, Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela, China, and then India at nine. I was going to say, did they even make the top, the top 10? 10. <laughs> bad, bad fact there that I had. I was lied to and deceived. I, I remember hearing something like that too. I don't remember exactly what it was, but just that India's got crazy biodiversity. Did Colombia just shoot up to the top of your list now, Chris? <laughs> I mean, I definitely have to go Google that now and figure out what's <laughs> over there. I got to go check on eBird and see what's over there. Yeah, one of our friends did a Columbia trip and he was trying to get us to do too because I guess you can do like um, group trips and then it's less money for everybody if you bring a bigger group down there. But he said he had a good time. So maybe nice. something worth looking into. Yeah. Do you guys have a place internationally? I guess I would ask you a two, two-part question. A place internationally that you've been that you really loved and then a place that's next on the list. You can answer first, Derek. Derek's the only one of the two of us that's actually birded internationally. Okay. I, I will say Costa Rica is incredible. Like I was there for a school field trip. Like it was a school class, but like the guide really loved birds. So we would go birding basically any free time we had. And a lot of the stuff was geared towards birds because it's such a big part of the industry down there. Yeah. And it's neat because you can go to school for ecotourism and then just start a guiding company down there. It seemed like a lot of people, they got their degree in ecotourism. And I'm like, I'm starting a guiding company which is pretty awesome as a career path because feasibly you can't really do that here. Yeah. But just the diversity of species and habitats was amazing. Um, on the list of places I'd like to go, I'd love to go back to Costa Rica. You definitely mm-hmm. can't see everything just on one trip. I feel like uh, Australia is another one that's kind of on my list that I'd love to go to. Um, really any of the places that you mentioned would be cool. Alaska, not out of the country, but it's definitely yeah. on the list. The big year made me want to go to Alaska. So I feel like someday I have to go there. Hawaii also is awesome. From what I, I like heard. how he's like, is there one place? And you're literally just naming the world. <laughs> you could literally places. name any place. And I'd be like, yes, I want to go bird there. Um, in terms of where I want to go, I would say New Zealand. Because I'd really mm-hmm. like to see Kakapos, uh, Kias, and Kiwis. 
And then I actually really in the United States, there's so many places I want to go still, such as like South Florida and then Maine, too, because I feel like that northeast part, you know, they have some specific things that they're hard to see elsewhere in the country. But I mean, you could spend years just birding the U.S. and not see everything that there is to see there. So, yeah, yeah. there's just so many good places to go. It's really hard to kind of narrow it down. But I I do feel like the ones where there's more of an ecotourism industry, it makes it easier to go because there's so many guides and places that you hear about. I'm sure there's yeah. a ton of hidden gems where it's not as developed, but you could see a lot of cool species. Yeah, I was looking at, um, you know, I've been to these three bird festivals mostly because I know people in those three places. So I just go to them as convenient. But I was looking at, you know, further east, which is easy to go east when I'm, you know, all the way over here on the west. But anywhere east in the U.S., I was looking at other festivals and I couldn't really tell, like, as I was looking at websites, because, you know, bird festivals don't always do the best job of upkeeping their, the upkeep of their websites or maintaining those, updating them. Uh, so it's hard to tell which of the other festivals were, you know, good festivals. Do you guys have any suggestions for other festivals on that side of anywhere else besides the West Coast? So I've what heard was really the third one you said you into because you said uh, the San Diego. Was... Okay, so I I've think heard... you know which one I'm gonna say, I've... Derek. I've heard really good things about Cape May in New Jersey. Okay, so that's one that we'd like to go to and and do some filming there. I think they have a spring and a fall festival. Hmm. That's like a good you know northeast one, and then the big one around here is the biggest week in American birding mm-hmm. that takes place in Ohio. So you can get a ton okay. of the warblers, the eastern warblers. But I will say we do get, I think, all of those also in on the lakefront in Wisconsin, too. So I think we're going to make an effort to go to Biggest Week this year mm-hmm. um, for the experience and, you know, hopefully document that. But you can also get a lot of that cool stuff here. So the Biggest Week place, I'm guessing that attracts a lot of pretty serious birders. I think it's the biggest birding fest- festival. Oh, wouldn't wouldn't you say, right? It's a, definitely one of the most well-known. It's at the Black yeah, so it, Swamp Bird known. Observatory for how many people are there it's in mcgee marsh i think is kind of like one of the places they go or like where it's held but it attracts a ton of people to the point where like part of the atmosphere is how many birders are there so it's like they have a boardwalk i think that is one of the places that you see a lot of warblers and there's a ton of people there and they're all getting the word out about different stuff so i heard it's like crazy in a positive way is like it's there's nothing quite like it and we're excited to experience it this year um but we've never heard anything bad about it we've never heard anybody that went down there and said that it wasn't a good time so i did see a I think it's you, you know about the merlin bird id app chris yeah so for those of you listening that don't know it's basically an app you can turn on sound id and it'll, it'll try to tell you what birds it's hearing and i saw a picture come out of biggest week where it was uh people had this like wrist thing with their phone attached to the wrist and then on their hat they had an external shotgun mic (laughs) and i heard that like every five seconds they weren't even looking at birds they were just looking down at merlin on their wrist to see what species it picked up that was one a funny picture that came out of biggest week that's next level it's something i don't don't know if it's healthy but it's something (laughs) i don't know about the wrist mount but i have thought of attaching a shotgun mic to my phone just to see if i could get better pickups i think you can yeah Somebody did that. Uh, remember Colin did that on our first day of the year birding challenge. Yeah, so, so it, it can be it done. Can be done. <laughs> did it work any better? I would I would imagine it say. would. Hard to say. Uh, what did you have for festivals, right? Was it the biggest week you were going to say? I was going to say biggest week, yeah, because that's like the most notable one in the Midwest, I would say. So mm-hmm. I, I think that would be really fun because out by you, you don't get a ton of those eastern warblers. 
So mm-hmm. you could just like, you know, knock them out real quick and get like a massive list of lifers with all that Eastern stuff. But uh, there's actually a, if you go to Cornell, there's a list of birding festivals and there's actually like way more than you would think. There's mm-hmm. a ton of tiny ones that kind of pop up. But I think the biggest ones are, I've heard San Diego, Southeast mm-hmm. Arizona. There's another Arizona one too that's pretty large, isn't there? I think it's called the Southwest Arizona. There's, I think that's a subtle thing in the title. I know there's one down in Wilcox. That might be the other one. Is there like a Tucson Audubon Festival too? I don't. The Southeast Arizona one is the one run by Tucson Audubon. Okay, I wasn't sure if there was another one, but um, Space Coast I think is one happening in Florida, hmm. um, and I think it actually starts in a couple days. That's another one I've heard. Yeah, biggest week, and then Cape May. Those are kind of the main ones that I've heard about. You could do a tour of them, like just, you know, hit each one. Indiana Dunes, I think, is another one. Yes, that is another one. You're right. There's also like some more obscure ones. Like there's a vulture fest that takes Hmm. place in um, Illinois, somewhere in southern Illinois, where they like celebrate the migration of the vultures. There's um, a mountain clover festival in (laughs) Colorado or Wyoming. There's the Illinois Gull Frolic. Yes, that is, there is that. That's like a, a one-day event, but it's like a thing where they basically, we mentioned the Great Lakes, they chum the area to try oh. to bring in these gulls. Ryan had a funny story about trying to attend that one year. It wasn't really funny. Like I reached out <laughs> to them and they were like, yeah, we'll let you you know, come down and film the festival. And uh, I was going down there with our friend Nathaniel and um, friend of my the car broke down. Yeah, my car broke down on one of the off ramps when we were about to wow. get into Illinois and I had to get it towed away. So didn't get to attend the golf frolic, but heard it was an average year at the golf frolic and I didn't miss too much. So that was good at least. Another year, hopefully. Another year. Well, cool. Chris, uh, we always ask if uh, our guests have any advice for new burgers. Being, uh, you know, relatively new speaking and terms of birders and their longevity do you have any advice for people getting into it yeah i think uh, i'll do two two pieces of advice uh one is just really paying attention to the birds you see frequently whether it's your backyard where you work places you visit frequently just get familiar with those birds you just watch them for a few minutes you can see uh, how they fly the way they look when they fly some of the key appearance features, and then obviously their call. So I think if you pay attention to those three things, just getting good at identifying a bird. So even if you see a bird fly by you and you don't see any of their appearance, but you see a fly by, you'll be able to ID it just because you understand how they move. Uh, I think that's one. And the other one I would say is with your local Audubon Society, just signing up for one of those trips. There's all these free trips typically available. I mean, I think that's a thing elsewhere. I know here, is that a Tucson thing or does that happen where you live too? I think it depends. Some of the stuff is like you have to be a member, but other things are open to the public. Depends on like the bird club running it. Okay. But they're pretty accessible. If you hop on their website, they have these trips all the time. That was just so much being a newer birder, going on one of those trips, you know, three or four hours, you're going with somebody who really knows what they're doing. And you're just walking around looking at birds and you can just ask all those questions because they know you're a beginner. It's catered to beginners. And you can just ask, oh, why did you say it was that? Why did you say it was in this tree? And and feel comfortable asking those simple questions. And you just learn so much, even just one of those trips. So I think paying attention to the birds that are really close to you, around you, and then going on one of those trips with somebody who knows more about birds than you do. Yeah, definitely. I think those are two really good pieces of advice. Ryan and I always talk about how it's so much more fun to go do anything with someone who's super knowledgeable. 
like sometimes we get out with our friends who know a lot about insects and we could just pepper them with questions about like, oh, what's this one? What's this? What's this? And it's, I'm sure it's the same when people go, you know, do birding or if you're with a mammal expert or somebody who knows a lot about mice or something like that. You'd be like, what's this one? What's this one? So yeah, it's a lot of one, fun. One of the guests I had on, Jeff Babson, he's an all around naturalist and he leads um, bird tours, but he even does little talks on moths, insects and all sorts of things. So he's somebody that I particularly enjoy having on the podcast because while we're sitting there doing our interview, you know, just running through the questions, we'll see off to the side a particular lizard or insect. And we'll just pause real quick and just start talking about that insect or lizard. And he'll tell me everything about it. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's it's called a whiptail or zebra, zebra stripe whiptail, something like that. I want to call lizard? it a whiptail because the way the tail moves. Yeah, a little lizard. And it has a curly white tail that has some black striping on it. I want to say I mean, it's a zebra or something. That sounds like it checks out. Didn't but we see it, a bunch of those at Sweetwater, Derek? I know there's common. whiptails. I don't know if they're zebra striped, though. They were cool looking, though. Yeah, a lot of cool yeah. lizards. But they have a really cool behavior where they will, you know, stay in one place and they'll just flash their tail side to side. And then suddenly they'll dart to a certain direction and just flatten out on the ground because that white part is only on the bottom of the tail, not on the top. So you get used to looking for that white. And then they go away and you can't see them at all because they blend in with the sand because the rest of their body is sand color. So I thought that was such a cool thing because this lizard came and did that thing right next to us because it thought we were predators, did its little display, and then ran and hid. That was so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's neat. Um, have you, random question, have you ever seen a Gila monster? No, but my wife has and she will not go on a night hike because of that. <laughs> really? She saw one on the one night hike she went on and she's she never wants to see one again. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> mind seeing one. I think it would be pretty cool, but I have yeah, not they seen one yet. So cool. Was she like afraid it was going to like run at her or something? I think it's just an intimidating lizard. You never see those <laughs> kinds of lizards. You know, they're, they're, they're so different than what we usually see in a desert. So you're used to seeing these shades of brown and green. And then you got this, you know, dark colored with this unique stripe and not striping um, patterning on it. Uh, and then it's massive size. I think it just looks intimidating to see something like that here that you don't expect to see. It doesn't look like any other lizard. I think that's a piece of it. Well, cool. That was one I really wanted to see when we were out there. And the day after we couldn't stay the whole festival for the Southeast Arizona one, the day after we left, the following night, the friends we were with sent us pictures. They found a one in the rain. I was like, son of a gun. Did but they give you time. any tips when you were there about places to visit? Did they mention any sites? Yeah, a little bit, but it's kind of like, seems dependent on when it rains. Like apparently after that, you have a much better chance of seeing them. So yeah. I think you kind of got to get lucky with the timing. Yeah, probably well, cool. summer monsoon. Good place, good time to see them. For sure. Uh, Ryder, do you have any other questions for Chris? Uh, I don't think so, but thanks so much for coming on, Chris. It was great talking to you. And uh, it's always great listening to your podcast too. Yeah, and we yeah. did the the Snowy Owl episodes. People can check that out at Looking at Birds. You want to tell us a little bit more about where people can find the podcast? Yeah, whatever podcasting platform you use to listen to podcasts, just type in Looking at Birds and you'll see it pop up. Uh, there's about 60 episodes there right now. And episode 60 was right here with Derek. And he talked about the Snowy Owls. You can check that out. Um, yeah, that's all I would say. That's the easiest way to find it. Cool. How can people help uh, support it? I know giving a rating always helps, right? Ratings yeah. and reviews or... That's the easiest way. I mean, a lot of podcasts, if they have a certain number of ratings, if they have a certain number of views, they get pushed up further up the list. When people search for a birding podcast, they're more likely to see yours if it's got more reviews and ratings. So, of course, that always helps, and I always appreciate it. 
Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. And thanks everyone for watching this episode of the Badgerland Birding Podcast. Thank you.